So a really interesting podcast today. Not that they're all not interesting, but it's not often you get legends of the game like Charles Daubeny, who ran Robert Waters and Resource Solutions um, for a number of years. And um, he talks about you know starting out and um, how he got into recruitment in a very honest way. Um, you, you know, probably not the way most people end up in it, but um, yeah, he goes through that. Um, talks about international expansion, how they grew the business, and also what he sees as the future of recruitment. Um, Cut a couple of times, such as the world of Zoom, but well worth just waiting through those pauses. And yeah, really enjoyable guest and um, you know, some fantastic insight for anyone just starting out, just you know, keeping going or someone with an end game in mind. So welcome to the Required Podcast. And we've got recruitment royalty today. Giles Daubeny, hopefully I've pronounced that, that correctly. Got it perfect, Andy. Oh, glad, glad. So, um, Giles, for those who don't know, was for many years at, at Robert Waters. Um, but I guess, you know, for those who don't know you, Giles, do you want to sort of explain your background in recruitment? Sure, no problem at all, Andy. Um, like many people probably of my age, I uh, fell into recruitment by accident. Um, I went to college, did hotel management, which I really enjoyed. was initially offered a job at the uh, Intercontinental on Park Lane and their management training scheme at the pricely sum of £4,200 a year and decided that that probably wasn't for me. I'd always been interested in sales, so I joined a travel company as a, as a rep. I was on the road. I went all over the UK to travel shows, exhibitions. Back in those days, for those of you that are old enough, you'll also remember going to a travel agent to book your holiday. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, until one you date there. yourself? What, what was your rep car? What did you have? Oh, I had, a, I had an Astra. <laughs> Astra GT with the company logo on the side. So it was nothing to, and I would go as far north as uh, Carlisle, White Irvin and Workington. Um, I think during Six Nations, I went to meet a load of my mates in the pub in Wimbledon, um, as you did in those days, drove there and drove back. Um, driving back wasn't my best decision because on the way back in Roehampton Lane, I got stopped by the Met Police. Um, uh, taken to Putney Police Station, where eventually I had a blood test and did the breathalyzer. A couple of months later, it was discovered that I was over the limit. So um, as a result, the companies that I worked for, even though they um, were happy for me to work in the office, um, I decided it was time to, to move on. So I took uh, two months off, uh, went to Corfu uh, with my great mates, flatmates, and had a great time came back and decided I needed to get a job. I saw a very small advert in the Times, had no idea what it was. And it was for a small recruitment company called Accountancy Selection. Um, my boss then was a guy called Rod Leaf, who is also known in the industry. I worked with Rod for about six months. And then I had a number of great mates who all worked at Baden and Clark. Um, so I went and joined uh, Baden and Clark with Alexander. Um, probably in those days, they were the second largest recruitment company in the UK. Alexander sent me down to Reading to an open an office for them down there. And then um, I got approached by Skeeker Walters. I'd never heard of them. Uh, met Rob, met a couple of other people, um, but decided the move wasn't for me. But Rob said to me, well, if ever you change your mind, Giles, give me a call. Um, a few months later, um, I decided to give Rob a call and met up with him 
and um, I guess the rest is history. I joined Robert Walters when we had one office. Uh, we were above the Empire in Leicester Square and 34 people. Um, so I guess that's how I got into recruitment. And I think the great thing about it was I started at the bottom as a consultant. So I know what it's like to make the cold calls, have offers rejected, get out, meet clients, meet candidates. I always remember one of the great things Rob always said and something I've always said. He said, Giles, I'll fund your social life two nights a week. I said, what do you mean, Rob? He said, I want you to get out there every two nights a week, taking clients and candidates out for drinks, coffee. Probably in those days, it was more drinks and coffee. Build relationships. And that's how you'll make money. And that's really how I started. I think recruitment is one of those things where no one grows up wanting to be a recruitment consultant. There's just a circumstance behind it or something happens and, and, and they end up. So basically it was, you know, you, you were the wrong roadblock away from not being in recruitment. Yes, you're quite right. I'm, I'm a great believer in fate. And, um, you know, it was one of those things. It was probably a good thing that I got done for drinking and driving because I would have never have gotten to recruitment otherwise. So what was, I mean, you obviously hear about Robin. I've never met him, actually. So um, what, what's he like to work with? Rob is a great guy to work with. Um, I, he, I guess, gave people a lot of freedom. Um, there was a lot of structure in the early days of the business. Um, he has always been very good at surrounding himself with good people. I mean, when I started, his number two was a guy called David Rives. And I've always believed when you look at really successful recruitment businesses, you tend to find there's a combination of two people with different skills. Rob was very much more of a front man. He was great with consultants, good with clients. Uh, probably by his own admission, he's not got the greatest uh, attention for detail. Um, whereas David Rives was extremely good at doing the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty. I mean, back in those days, a unique selling point from Robert Walters' point of view was that we didn't recruit for the accounting firms. We headhunted out of the big eight as they were. And every morning, religiously, we used to start with what we called a candidate review. All of us would go into the boardroom and we would talk about the candidates that we have headhunted and interviewed the previous day and where we were going to send them. And we literally used to go around the table and they'd say, right, well, you've interviewed Andy. He's at Ernst & Winnie. He wants to work in retail. Which retail companies are we going to send him to? And that is exactly how our day started. And it started like that every day. And I think in some offices still around the world, that's how it still starts. Is that still the case? I mean, you know, the, you know, the big four as they are now, they're just great training grounds, I guess, for your, you know, for your candidates to supply your customers or, you know, as it were. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, there's always been a demand for qualified chartered accountants, and there's always been a large number of them that don't want to go on and have a career within the accounting profession. Um, they want to either go into investment banking or to work in corporates. And I think you can apply the same thing now for lawyers uh, and, and across many other disciplines. But what made us unique in those days was that we um, didn't recruit for the profession and we headhunted. The, you, we didn't spend any money on corporate advertising. If ever you saw an advert with Robert Walters' name on, it was, it was paid for by a client. Okay, wow. I think the other thing that you guys got very famous for, and you were very much one of the front runners, was Resource Solutions. 
And that pretty much, you know, that whole RPO play, you know, changed the industry, I think, very much. So, you know, did, did you realise how big, you know, that sort of seismic shift would be at the time when you, when you first started offering that out? No, I don't think we did. I mean, it's initially started because we had a very good client, which was uh, back in those days, Credit Suisse, first Boston. Um, and the previous employee had gone to work for them within their HR department. And they were so inundated with jobs that she rang us up and said, could you could you give us somebody? We, we need some help. Um, and so we put somebody down into their offices and as a result of that, and we opened Resource Solutions in 1997, Resource Solutions was born. Um, we would probably say it was the only innovative thing that we've done in the whole of the recruitment um, time that Robert Walters has been around. Yeah, but if you're going to do one thing, do it, do it pretty well. I mean, I, I was, um, you know, it, 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 it used to be quite easy to place into the banks. And then you guys started, you know, tying up you know, all of, all of the big banks and, you know, following process and you had to go through certain, you know, certain hoops to, to do it. So I think it very much did, did change the industry. Yes, it did, I think. Um, and I think it put in, um, some would say, good and bad controls. If you weren't on the list, you couldn't supply an organisation. But I suppose organisations wanted to tidy up their recruitment processes for so many years People could deal with all sorts of agencies, be it big, small individuals. There were all sorts of different fee agreements. So I think organisations looked at it as a way of probably controlling costs and actually having greater control over recruitment process. Do you, do you think it took a little bit of art out of the game, though? You know, if you, you know, the, the good thing about recruiters, you know, they can they fill a requirement, they fill a need, they 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 get in there, they 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 do it. So. Some of that art and skill for the really good salespeople got, got quashed and, you know, uh, I, I just feel sometimes that, you know, it was process sometimes for process sake. I think there's an element of that. But when you look at the outsourcing business, um, the company were buyers of those services were big global organisations. I mean, initially, you could say the investment bank started doing it and then big global corporates did. But to me, the market was so big that the skill of being a recruitment consultant, which as far as I'm concerned, was the sort of the fun of getting on the phone, generating a job, meeting a client and uh, finding candidates and putting them together. You could still do that. I mean, I'd probably be the first to admit I would not have enjoyed working on a sort of outsourced client because I also believe that you did lose a bit of the sort of the contact, the relationship you know, that you used to have with a client. And I'm going to give you a great example. I had a great client, which was a big retail company, Storehouse. And I got on very well with the uh, group financial controller. And he rang me up on a uh, Friday and he said, Giles, I'm about to go on holiday, but um, I've got a job for you. Can you have a look at these? See, you know, can you get some CVs down for me before I go away in a week's time? And I said, sure, Ian, but I tell you what, how about you and I commit that you're going on holiday a week today I'll fill this job for you by Friday next week if I don't you can choose the restaurant in London and I'll pick up the bill now that was the relationship I had with the client he said you're on I'll free my diary up I only want to see four people get on with it by the close of play the following Friday we'd filled the job 
And um, to me, that was what the relationship was all about. And I knew I could find him candidates and I knew what he look, was looking for. Yeah, that's, that's the thing I used to love about recruitment. It was, you know, you, you, you can create something from nothing and very, very quickly. And, you know, like that, that Friday afternoon when nothing's happened all month, suddenly that can change. The job can come in. Your weekend's wrecked because you're going to be looking for people. But, you know, that, that, was, that, was, that was the requirement. So people listening to this podcast might be in a very similar situation. They might be, you know, typically recruitment owners either just starting out or they've got to 37 people like when you join Walters. So they're all looking to go on that journey of um, growing and internationalization. Um, you obviously, you know, went international with Walters. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about where you went and why and, you know, any sort of lessons learned from that? Oh, we made plenty of lessons learned, Andy, and, and over the years, quite a lot of mistakes made. I think that the, the vision for the business was always to go international. Uh, and I was lucky myself. I, um, I spent four years in Holland um, opening the business there, which was a massive learning curve. Um, the job is the same. You've got a client who's looking to hire. You've got people who are looking to move. It's actually how you put them together, which is culturally different. I think for me and, and in my experience, the key to growing an international business is to have the right quality people. And I think over the years where Robert Walters got it right was that we either transferred somebody who'd been within the organization, who I trusted, you've got the relationship with, and he or she then hired local people. We were great believers in having, you know, local people in the local businesses. Um, I mean, I'll give you a great example, you know, quite a few years ago when we went, we were already in Singapore, but the guy running the Singapore business had identified, we were getting a lot of clients saying to us, could you help us in Malaysia? And he spoke to me and I said, well, Mark, go and research the market, come back um, and let's hear your recommendations. So I invested in him going down there, researching the market, he came back, he said, Giles, there's definitely a market. This is the location that we should be in. And by the way, there's a guy working in my office who's ready to move. He's worked for us for seven years, who I think would be great to go there. So I said, right, put the budget together, Mark. We did. We approved it at the board. And that's how we op opened Malaysia. I mean, the guy that went down there, Ross, the first thing he did was um, hire a local. And Sally ran that business in Malaysia for 14 years before retiring. Her successor was somebody that she was recruited. Uh, and I think that's a great example there of getting into that market um, where an RW person went, hired locals. And I know that office now is completely staffed by local people. I think that's, Another, that's the thing. The, the expats get you there, but the locals get you the growth. Absolutely. And, but it can also be in combination. I mean, I think the other major success story for opening an international office was um, opening in Japan. Um, and that came about in a way, the conversation Rob and I were having with um, Paul Dighton, who was then the CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs, who were a big client. And he said to us, what are you doing in Japan? And we said, well, we thought about it, but we don't know a great deal about it. So he said, well, I'll introduce you to the HR director responsible. It's an area we're going into, and I think it would be a great market for your business. I subsequently met the HR director. Two of us then went out and visited Japan and thought, yeah, this is a market 
we've got to be in. But it was it was a big investment. It was expensive. And this was also an example of where initially we got it wrong. We went into the market. We hired somebody who we thought would be perfect. He was British, um, married to a Japanese girl, um, spoke the language fluently, just what you'd think you'd need. Somebody who had worked for the business already for 10 years. Um, he'd started up our business in Australia and Singapore and sent him to Tokyo. Now, the great thing was that we had a really good hire there. He was another Australian chain. And Shane and Kevin were probably the best two combination I've been lucky enough to work with in building an office um, in a new location. Kevin was a fantastic salesman, front man, and Shane was a great detail man. And what we'd learned about the Japanese market, and I think this is why Walters have probably been more successful than anybody else there, it is a headhunt market. There is no advertising. The only way you generate candidates is through headhunting them. So we vigorously headhunted bilingual professionals out of the accounting firms initially, and then moved them into international corporates. And that's how that business grew. And that's a great example. We have had at one stage 16 different nationalities working for us in Japan, but also a large number of locals. The business today happens to be run by an Australian who um, speaks fluent Japanese, his wife and family. Japan is his home. Um, but two of his management team are local Japanese that we hired as young people who've developed their career. And the business now has probably over 250 consultants in. We're in Tokyo and we're, we're in Osaka. So there to me is a great example of a really successful startup business but had its teething problems to begin with i think what's really lovely is the way you still talk about we uh, and i i find myself doing that at, you know about, about s3 you know i was there 20 years so yeah yeah so but it, but it's still I, I sometimes have to change that to to, to they um as a sort of remember i'm not there anymore but but it does feel very much you know like it was part of a journey it was part of a family and therefore it very much was was we um when we first met i think we were at a workshop and we were talking about m a and i remember you very much talking about your experience of acquiring a company and how the culture just didn't work so you know, but you know, you, you, and I think you said you hadn't acquired since then. So, you know, what 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 was the background on that one? I think about my time at Robert Walters. We we made three acquisitions. Um, the first one was a, an IT business in '97 called TriStar, which was a hugely successful acquisition um, because, in a way, as you know. When you're buying businesses in recruitment, remuneration and how people are paid is key. Robert Walters has always been an organization that has paid a quarterly bonus scheme rather than commission. Um, and TriStar was a business that was run like that. So they had a quarterly bonus scheme. So in terms of remuneration and all of that, it was very easy. Um, the second acquisition we made in just 2001 was a company called Dunhill Management Services who were also in Australia, who were more of a selection business. The, the biggest problem we had with that business was it was a commission business and people were very skeptical about, well, what am I gonna earn? And we had to convince them that actually 
you will earn the same, if not more, um, on our model. And I think that that was the great thing. The last acquisition we made was in um, China of a company called Talent Spotter. And I think the mistake we made there initially was that the guy that owned it was a very dynamic individual. He wanted to be part of an international group and he realized he needed to be. What I should have done or what we should have done, we should have put somebody in that business right next to him who was a Robert Walters person because he went off on all sorts of tangents and, and, and at one stage the business grew extremely well um, but then hit a bit of a, a bit of a wall and, and it's taken a while for it to recover. Uh, from what I know now these days it has recovered very well. I think the problem with acquisitions certainly with our industry is a I think an organically grown business and you will have seen this um, with your own career at S3 um, is you create more of a DNA of people who especially if you're hiring graduates and moving them into management um, they bought in it's not oh well I used when I was working here if I build this I'd earn that or we used to do it this way and I think that's where and I think it's probably interesting if you look at the two certainly were I don't know if they still are fastest organically grown recruitment companies they were both well they were Michael Page and Robert Walters and neither of them were um, particularly acquisitive I mean you mentioned to me earlier you know things that you might have done differently I think um, it's strange that I say this I think Robert Walters had the opportunity to make two acquisitions um, one of an IT company that was extremely successful but we didn't, UK-based. Uh, and actually, there was another one, which was an IT business in Germany. And I would say if I could turn the clock back, I think those two acquisitions would have been fantastic for the business. But I guess, you know, as a, as a management team, we, we weren't an M&A play. Possibly we were overcautious because of things we'd experienced before. But I would say that if those two acquisitions had being done by the business, um, it would be at least double the size it is today. So I guess I guess the sort of, you know, if, if you're there running a business, either starting up, you're at 20 or 30 people, would your advice be to grow organically or go and get funding and do it on steroids? You know, if you had your time again, you know, because both models are, are, are perfectly normal and you, you see that quite a lot, but how would you approach it if you were, if you were starting a business again? Do you know, I don't think I'd change anything. I do firmly believe in the organic uh, growth model, but I also believe, and, and probably what I've learned a bit more in the last few years, if you could find the right acquisition that gets you into a market quicker than you can do it yourself, then I think there's merit for doing that. Um, but I think you've got to be aware that it's all about people. And when you're buying something, you're not buying your people. Um, and you never really know what's there till the deal's done. So if you're advising, you know, recruitment companies on, you know, what they need to do to be bought. So, you know, what, what advice would you give them? You know, um, say they're, they're looking to sell in five years. They've probably got their number in mind. They know how big. But what other things should they be doing? I think the key thing is, is hiring the right people and, and making sure you hire and retain 
good quality people. I think to grow a recruitment business, and I would say, you know, credit to Rob, he realized he couldn't do it on his own. So you surround yourself with good people. I mean, I, I was very lucky the end, towards the end of my career. I had a dozen people working for me who reported to me directly around the world. At least two of them had joined the business when they were graduates. Wow. So their whole career had been there. And when you've got that as a team, so, you know, I could speak to somebody on Australia and if he'd say to me, I'm having a bad month, I knew he'd have a bad month. If he said to me, I'm having a good month, he was having a good month. So it's absolute trust. And I think that is key. Um, I think you've got to do things. Don't try and do too much too quickly. You know, we, we greatly believed or I greatly believed in subdividing growth. So you'd start a team, build it up. And we always used to start with perm recruitment rather than contract. Then when you've got that team to a certain size, you might split it instead of doing just financial services. You do financial services credit and then you'd add on risk or you'd add on tax or audit. So you, you've got to build from a solid base. I think sometimes people think, well, I've got to grow my business. And they've got eight teams, but they've only got a couple of people in each team. Well, that's no good. I'd much prefer to have three teams with five people in that are all very profitable, and then looking at adding another team or another location. So I guess, you know, you, you've, you've been there, you've seen it, you've done it. What's, what's the future for recruitment and especially recruitment agencies, do you think? Well, I think recruitment's going through um, a really interesting transition. I mean, the, the biggest change in, in my time in the industry, it'd be the same for you, Andy, is technology. You know, when I started in this business, I had a box of cards on my desk and, uh, and a telephone. I didn't have a computer. Um, I think technology has changed. And I actually believe what we've all been through in the last two years with COVID has changed the industry. Um, some people might not say for good, but certainly um, people's attitude to work-life balance, um, working from home has changed. And I don't think it will ever go back. Now, does that mean the industry is still not going to be what it was? I believe the industry will always be what it is. There is always a demand for good quality people um, in all sorts of disciplines all over the world. And clients, will there will always be a war for talent. Um, and I think as, as an agency, a recruitment business or search firm, front of that and you are good at what you do, um, you will be busy and there will be opportunities. I think it's the way the job's done. It's a bit like we were talking about the outsourcing business. Um, but it's still about relationships. I still meet people and I still go out and talk to people in the industry. And it's all about going to meet a client, going to meet a candidate. I think the big difference is um, you don't necessarily meet a candidate in the office now. More and more people will do a Zoom call, might meet them in Starbucks. Whereas when you and I started, candidates used to come in at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning in their lunch hour or at 6, 6.30 after they'd finished work. Now, most candidates want to go to the gym at 6.30, but they also have the freedom to do a Zoom call at any time during the day or meet you for a coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon. I, I couldn't believe your office in um, Slingsbury, Slingsbury Place. Um, it literally was a, a floor of 
little meeting rooms. I just just couldn't believe it. And you know, I think I think where Estuary had been sort of a bit more technologist, it wasn't quite as it was more phone based. You know, there was this whole every time we meet, you know, we meet, we meet, we meet, and that was just I'm just like wow, that must have been you know super busy back in the day. Oh, it was. The interview rooms were packed out. And it was one of the great things that we used to look at, the utilisation of interview rooms. And why aren't they being used? Why, why are they empty? But obviously, over the last five years, that, that changed greatly. I think the other interesting change has been mobile phones, dare I say it, because back in the day, you could only get hold of a candidate either through his office, well, he or she out on audits you couldn't necessarily get hold of them or used to get hold of them at home i mean you know there were a lot of people that you know would do their home phone calling they'd be ringing people at home at seven eight o'clock at night because you knew that's when they were at home nowadays you can ring people 24 7 you can send them a whatsapp message um i mean i always remember one of the incentives one of the offices had about six or seven years ago is you know we were daily competitions who could arrange you know do the most calls arrange the most meetings um you know sent it for the day and then the team would go out and i remember the person who won it um she'd arranged 14 meetings every one of them had been through whatsapp just let hadn't, hadn't spoken to anybody yeah i mean i think i think what's great for me and the thing i love about the industry is the industry just evolves so you know i think i think when I joined, it was like, oh, the job board's going to do it. It's going to be in-house teams. LinkedIn's going to kill you. Automation's going to... And I think all it does is, you know, I actually think the job of a recruiter now is a lot more complicated than it was, you know, when I joined. I mean, it was you didn't have to do a lot of things. It was pretty simple. Now, it, it looks like flying a Boeing 747 or something like that, you know, all of all of the various tasks and things you have to do and, and, and gate. So... I think actually technology has has actually probably made the job more complicated than easier. I to totally agree with you. Um, and, I, and I'm a great believer is that actually re recruitment is a simple industry and it's a simple job. I think exactly like you, there are more tools to make it more complicated. Whereas if you had fewer tools, um, you'd probably be more efficient as well. There's the amount of time I've seen people tapping away at their keyboards rather than making calls or doing things um, you, because they've got to fill in an online application form or yeah. they're searching LinkedIn, whereas probably in our day, you get hold of some names, you just ring them up. Yeah, I mean, I think I think technology definitely helps, and I think I think you know things like that have changed. But I, I still go back to the point of you know your point of it's a people business, and you know I think I think if you spend two nights meeting people, talking to people, those those relationships just become a lot more powerful. And I think even even you know I think I think what technology has done is I think it's leveled the playing field. So. You know, back in the day, those sort of sophisticated systems were only available for the very top firms who invested in them. Now, it's almost a disadvantage to be a big firm because it's so cumbersome to change all of these things. Some of the some of the technology we've seen, you know, that our small group, the dinghy use, is just off the chart. And, you know, they're, they're able to, you know, to, to be a lot more productive. But, you know, still, it always comes down to the relationship they hold with their customers and their candidates. And, you know, that's that's the bit you can't automate, that, that personal feel, that personal touch. 
I totally agree with you. I mean, it still boils down to, um, do you have the right candidate? Yeah, pretty much. After, after all these years and all this tech change and pandemics, it's pretty much, have, have you got something someone wants? Yeah. And, and have, why, why should I come to you? Why are your candidates, you know, better than the company down the road? Uh, and I guess it's all about, well, because of our network, because of what we do. And I think you and I can remember back in the day, the most important thing was your database. Yeah. And it was protected and it was kept up to date. You know, I can remember at one stage, not long um, when I joined Robert Walters, when we had 100 candidates on the database. Now, bear in mind, we were just newly qualified chartered accountants. That's all we were working with. But when you've got 100 and they've been properly interviewed and you know they want to, to either join an investment bank or a corporate, it's not difficult to get on the phone to them. Yeah, it's, it's uh, potentially 100, 100 different placements right there. So, yeah, it's a really good way of looking at it when you hear about, you know, well, honestly, the amount of times I hear, you know, we've got a million candidates in our database and, you know, that, yeah, just, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's clutter. So, um, it's fascinating to hear about the past and, yeah, your views and your experiences because I think, I think they're still completely relevant today. I think hire for culture, you know, create an amazing experience, you know, hire great people around you. They're all great lessons for, for anyone. So um, what's, what does the future hold for you, Giles? What are you going to be doing in your, um, in your, um, in your years subsequent to, to Walters? What's the plan? Certainly keeping out of the way of my wife, well, I think that's what she thinks. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I had never intention I'm not going to do another full-time job. Um, I've got two or three different non-exec positions, which I really enjoy. Right. Um, I'm currently a non-exec director of Redgrave, the executive search firm. Um, I'm a non-exec director of a company called Umbrella.co.uk, who I know you know well. Yeah. And... Um, the bizarre one, the last one, which is particularly bizarre, I'm, I'm a, a non-exec director of an asset management business, um, which is a startup, which is very different and very unusual. I've also spent quite a lot of time out networking and talking to private equity, which is something I've been very interested in. And I've done a couple of projects for private equity businesses who've been looking at our industry um, and either looking at specific companies or just asking for, for market research. Uh, and I found those really interesting. Um, the carrot certainly with um, a couple of those that I have looked at would be that they would like me to chair the business if they were to be successful in purchasing it. Um, one of the ones that we looked at, the private equity company didn't get it. They were very disappointed. And another one that I looked at with another private equity company, we decided that it wasn't right to invest in. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed that. And I've been doing a bit more of that. But I still, you know, like you, Andy, this business is out talking to people. And actually, um, I am talking to a couple of organisations. And what the perfect thing for me would be to find a business that is growing, that wants to grow internationally, um, with a management team that could probably do with an old fart and a few grey hairs. Um, there's, there's probably quite a few of them that could do with an old fart and a few grey hairs. Don't you worry. They, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no such replacement for experience. 
Charles, it's been great as always. And, um, you know, when, um, when we're both in London, it'd be really good to, um, you know, to, to meet up and do that lunch properly and, um, and practice what we preach, meet up and, and, and have a chat. So thank you very much for sparing the time and um, catch up soon. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Andy. And um, as you say, it's a great shame we're not doing this over a few beers, but um, we will. Um, hope you and the family keep well and uh, look forward to catching up very soon. Fantastic. Cheers then. Cheers, Charles. Cheers, Andy. Take care.